Okay, so this is part two of our current event and weekly Bible study for January 27th, 2008. And we're going to continue where we picked off. We're, we're talking about, this is the section where um, the Mormons were accusing Jesus Christ of being a polygamist, having multiple wives. Uh, these are a few of the quotes from the writings of the Mormon elders concerning the fact that they teach and believe the, the blasphemy that Jesus was married to Mary, Martha, and the other Mary, and that God was once a man and now lives in heaven practicing polygamy. This is from a quote from, um, oh, word, this is a huge reference here, Answers to the Gospel Questions, Volume 4, Salt Lake, ish. Suffice it to say, you can go up on, you can click in this link I'll give you, and you can, you can see these quotes. This quote reads, To obtain celestial glory, which means to obtain godhood, a couple must have a temple marriage referred to as the sealing ceremony or endowments. This marriage is referred to as for all time and eternity, which means an eternal marriage. Now, for all time and eternity is a very, very common phrase used in witchcraft. In fact, when this Bill Schneblin guy got married as a witch, as a druid, when they were when they were joined, I remember him distinctly using that particular phrase for all time and eternity. So again, all the Mormonism is, all Freemasons are, is just repackaged witchcraft at their highest levels. They present this nice whitewash veneer to the world, but at the higher levels, it's just satanic. So, this quote goes on to say, jo uh, Joseph Fielding Smith gave this answer to the question about Mormon couples who are not married in the temple. Quote, Unless young people who marry outside the temple speedily repent, they cut themselves off from exaltation in the celestial kingdom of God. If they should prove themselves worthy, notwithstanding that great heir, to enter into the celestial kingdom, they go into that kingdom as servants. So in other words, you know, if you don't get married in the uh, Mormon temple, you're forfeiting um, certain privileges, and if you do get to the celestial kingdom, then you're just going to go in as servants. So, again, just extra-biblical nonsense. But this means that unless Jesus Christ was married, he would not be allowed to go to the highest heaven, which is, which is the celestial heaven, nor could he become a god. Think about that. If we take this quote from this devil that just gave us this quote, that's the, that's the obvious conclusion we would have to come to. It is an absolute fact that the LDS Church's official teaching is that a man must be married in order to obtain the celestial heaven. So see, they can't have Jesus Christ being unmarried. The unmistakable conclusion is that the LDS God was a mortal man who was married, and his marriage qualified him to be exalted to godhood. The God of Mormons is a man-god who was once who once was a man like any other man, who by his good works was exalted to godhood. But that is what the Mormons are working for. Not salvation, but godhood. Okay, so they're not, they're, they're working for godhood. Okay. Um, the Jesus the Mormons proclaim to love so dearly is absolutely not the Jesus Christ of the Bible, but according to their teaching, sexual offspring of their God and one of his many wives in heaven. So, again, we had, we had already reiterated that, where they believe Jesus Christ came from. In fact, Jesus, Satan, and all men are the actual offspring of their God of flesh and bone. So now, let's go back to some of their teachings. What do they teach about salvation? 
Or no, let's, let's talk about sin next. Sin. Sin. The earthly bodies of Adam and Eve were intended to be immortal tabernacles for their spirits. Quote, but it was necessarily, but it was necessary for them to possess through mortality and be redeemed through the sacrifice made by Jesus Christ that the fullness of the time might come. End of quote. Therefore they disobeyed God's commands. Since the fall of man was necessary, it became necessary for men to disobey God in order to do his will. Oh, isn't that an excuse to sin? I mean, should we sin that grace may abound? Well, that they, they, you know, hey, we, unless Adam and Eve had sinned, Jesus Christ would have never came. That's their justification for this. Adam's fall, thereby, was a fall upward, not downward. And again, what a lie. What a total lie. Now, if we go to the fifth point here in the end notes. You know what? I skipped over a lot of stuff here. Let's talk about a few of the things I skipped over here. And then we'll get to this fifth point in a second. The Book of Mormon, point two, purported by Joseph Smith to be inspired by God, is the most infamous of all Mormon scriptures. Smith concocted the preposterous yarn that an angel named Moroni appeared to him in 1827, told him and told him of some golden plates hidden in a hillside near Palmyra, New York. From these plates, Smith supposedly translated the Book of Mormon. Published in 1830, this was so to become the first of many scriptures for the Mormon church. By this time, Smith also officially organized the LDS church and was gaining a following. In actuality, the Book of Mormon is a fraud. Having been plagiarized from the Bible, from Shakespeare, from the Pope's Essay on Man, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, and from other leading authors of the last few hundred years prior to Smith's death. See, this guy, all he, all he knew to do, he had, probably never had an original thought in his life. He was really good, though, at plagiarizing stuff. He plagiarized the Freemasons, he plagiarized all, this other, all these other writings in order to concoct the Book of Mormon. But despite its plagiarisms, the Book of Mormon contradicts the Bibles, the Bible in hundreds of places. So he didn't get his plagiarism very right, even as far as if he ever wanted to line up with the Bible. But I really don't think that was any big concern for him. Now Joseph Smith explained, I'm going to tell you how God came to be a God. We have all imagined and supposed that God was a God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see he was once a man like us, yea, the God himself, the Father of us all, dwelt on earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did. This is from the LDS History of the Church, Volume 6, page 305. And there's other things here too he said that we've already kind of really hit that point though. Um... <clears throat> Jesus, according to Milton Hunter of the LDS First Council of Seventy, is the brother of Lucifer. The appointment of Jesus to be Savior of the world is contested by one of the other sons of God. He was called Lucifer, son of the morning, haughty, ambitious, and covetous, of power and glory. The spirit brother of Jesus desperately tried to become the Savior of mankind. Where is that said? It's said in the Gospel through the Ages, page 15. And remember, these are all Mormon documents I'm quoting from here. And on to this point five, which is where I left off. On June 8th, 1873, speaking from the Salt Lake Tabernacle, Brigham Young said, quote, The devil told the truth. I do not blame Mother Eve. 
I would not have had her miss eating that forbidden fruit for anything. Another Mormon president declared, quote, The fall of man came as a blessing in disguise. We can hardly look upon anything resulting in such benefits as sin. Incredibly, Mormonism is based upon the belief that Satan's central lie is actually the gospel truth. If you think about it, why? Because Satan, what is the first sin of humanity in the Bible? When Satan went to Eve in Genesis 3 and tempted her. Ye shall be as gods. He was more subtle than any beast of the field. Okay, that was his first lie. He questioned the word of God. But based on what the Mormons are saying here in these quotes that we just read, this belief on Satan's central lie is actually the gospel truth. Woe unto them that call good evil and evil good. That put darkness for light and light for darkness. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's what they're doing. They're calling something evil good. So if we go back to the teaching here. If we go to the next point on salvation. Mormon theology teaches that the atonement of Christ was essential to our salvation and eternal life with God, but that it's not sufficient, though. Christ's shed blood on the cross provides for universal resurrection of all people, but does not pay for personal sins, according to Mormonism. Well, again, just throw the Bible out the window. You know. If you believe that, you might as well. Only Christ shed blood in the Garden of Gethsemane atones for personal sin. Now, how crazy is that? Where is that said in the Bible? The Garden of Gethsemane? Where, when, when it said that he prayed so hard that he shed drops of great blood, as, as we sweat drops of great blood? That's, where the, what, that's the reference they're in reference to. Now, I'm not saying that wasn't a holy thing. I'm not saying that wasn't a good thing. But... It's the blood he shed on the cross to pay our sin debt, which is what the Bible identifies as paying our sin debt. But they're, they're, this is extra biblical here. They're saying that the blood shed in the Garden of Gethsemane actually is what atones for personal sin. See, they're acting as though they are their own little gods. Because they're interpreting scripture as though they are their, their own little gods unto themselves. Besides faith in Christ, complete and permanent repentance of all sin, as well as many good works, are required. Again, it's works. Not of works, though the Bible says, lest any man should boast. That's not how you get saved. Mormonism also teaches that one must be baptized. Now, works will be following true conversion and true salvation, because if the Holy Spirit actually lives inside you, works will follow. That will produce fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, faith, temperance, these types of things. The Bible talks about that showing you, showing a person his faith by his works. Okay, but it's not works before faith. Because if it's works before faith, you're not even saved. And then the verse from Isaiah 64, 6 applies. For all of our righteousness are as a filthy rag. For we are all together as an unclean thing. And we do, doth fade as a, doth a leaf. So our best day, apart from Christ, apart from not being saved, is a filthy rag in God's eyes. But if we're doing it through Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as a born-again Christian, led by the Spirit, those are not filthy rags anymore. Okay? 
But you have to have the order in the correct order. And and your your eternal destiny depends on it, really. You have to have it in the right order. All the other isms in the world, all the other false religions have it in the opposite order. It's works is what's getting them to either heaven or nirvana or paradise, wherever they think they're going to end up. The celestial city. I don't know. So... Let's see here. Mormonism also teaches that one must be baptized in water to be saved, which is called baptismal regeneration. And that, Now, this is something you should do after you're saved. But again, this is a works thing. They want, they want to work their way to heaven. And that salvation will also be available in the next world for those missing out in this one. Therefore, Mormons avidly pursue genealogy and practice baptism for the dead. They want to baptize for the dead. Because they might not have been Mormons, my ancestors. And we got a baptism by proxy. That's what they do in the temple. One of the things they do. What an abomination that is. What do they teach on heaven and hell? Mormonism teaches that there are three degrees of glory. Celestial for the good Mormons. Able to cease sinning in this lifetime. Oh, okay. Now, even if you're saved... If we say that we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us, according to 1 John. Even after we're saved. Jesus Christ is the only one that ever came to the earth that lived a perfect life and did not sin. Okay? I understand what you're saved. You should be sinning a whole lot less. And it should, and you, and it should be your goal to strive to live a life of perfection. But we're not going to attain that level until we're with Jesus Christ. But they believe that, that you talk about pious and sanctimonious. There's some that believe that they're appointed for the celestial kingdom for good Mormons able to cease sinning in this lifetime. Wow, they I'd like to meet one of them. See, the very essence of what they do is an abomination and a sin in God's eyes. The, the very essence of their religion of their, of their puffed up belief that I have ceased from sinning is an abomination in God's eyes. What is that? That's the quintessential essence of pride. Well, I have not sinned in 40 years. I have ceased sinning. I transcend good and evil. You talk about somebody full of pride. These are probably the same ones molesting children and stuff and practicing an incest and they probably think they're not sinning. Well, it's part of my religion at the higher levels. You're probably right. It probably is. Telling you, if you could see what goes on at the top of these cults, it is depravity unlike anything you could ever imagine. Think that's what they're going to present to the world, though? No. Why is there depravity at the head? Why is it worse there? Because Satan's at the head. And the closer you get to Satan, the more depraved you're going to get. Just like the closer you get to God, the more holy you get. And the closer you get to God, He's like a light. He shines on our sins. He shines on our shortcomings in these types of things. And the closer you get to God, the more you actually see your inadequacy in regard to perfection. That's a whole other study. But So, then the second level of glory is terrestrial for good people who do not comply with the teachings of Mormonism. And then the third is telestial for those who have lived unclean earthly lives. This is from Mormon Doctrines, page 348. I'm not making this up again. Mormonism teaches that there is a hell, but only for the sons of perdition. 
a very small number of souls that cannot be redeemed. According to Mormonism, then the vast majority of mankind will be saved, though it should be obvious that no one will make it to the celestial kingdom. Blacks used to be totally out of this equation because, quote, black people are black because they are of their misdeeds in the pre-existence. End of quote. That was from Three Degrees of Glory by the LDS Apostle Melvin Ballard. Page 21. Quote, The Negro is an unfortunate man. He has been given black skin. But that is nothing compared with the greater handicap. He is not permitted to receive the priesthood and the ordinances of the temple necessary to prepare men and women to enter in into and enjoy a fullness of glory in the celestial kingdom. End of quote. In 1978, however, Mormon Church announced that God had lifted the curse from the African race. Oh, good. That's like the Pope coming and like Second Vatican Council II saying this or saying that. All it is is some devil's demonic opinion. Because they know that, I mean, that was said, what, in 78? You know, for a time period, that would have been no big deal when, when you know, when they had a lot more segregation and, and racism. But as, as, as that starts to dissipate more, I'm not saying it's going to ever totally dissipate, but they had to become more politically correct. They had to become more compliant. They didn't want to take the heat from the black Americans on this particular issue, so they just changed their, their policy. That's all they did. And then let's talk about then the temple rituals. A typical temple ceremony would take place as follows. The ritual began in a small cubicle where we had to strip completely. Then we put on the shield, a poncho with a hole in the head, but open on the side, similar to a hospital gown. We went through a series of washings and anointings as the various parts of our body were touched by elderly temple workers who mumbled appropriate incantations over them. Wow, this sounds really biblical. You have elderly um, Mormon workers touching other people's various body parts. That sounds pretty biblical to me. The Bible says, lay hands suddenly on no man. You know, don't flee all appearance of evil, all these other things. But I guess they threw those out. And then it says... Our magic Mormon underwear, the garments, are said to have powers to protect us from the evil one. Did you know they wore magic Mormon underwear? I remember when um, Bill Schneblin said he came out and he finally got saved. He was actually in the Mormon church. He said that he, he took off his magic Mormon underwear when he actually went in and he, and he gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ and he got saved. And this was a long time. This wasn't just some little prairie uttered. There was a lot that led up to this. Okay, A lot of Bible study and these types of things in his particular case. And he said he took off his magic Mormon underwear because he didn't want any static on the line to God. <laughs> so, which is true if you think about it. I mean, it'd be like... It'd be like having a satanic Bible in your arm, trying to say the, you know, trying to get saved. It'd be kind of tough, kind of hypocritical. So, anyway, they wear these undergarments because they believe that these um, undergarments protect them from the evil one, which is actually the exact opposite. Actually, what it does is it attracts demons to them. Why is that? Because their magic Mormon underwear have occult markings, which are so sacred that they were instructed to burn them when the garments wore out. See, these, these garments have all these... Um, actually, I sent out a picture of, of one of these, this underwear um, one time. Because if you do keyword searches up on the internet, like with Yahoo, you can actually do a keyword search like for Mormon underwear. And then what you can do is they have a little thing, a little tab, a little 
drop-down bar and you can click on camera, which will give you an image, if there's any images available. And you can go up there and you can look at these things. You know, um, you know they're very fashionable. I, I must admit that. I mean, they're pretty tray chic. No, just kidding. Teasing. Anyway, um, so the endowment ceremony mocked. Now, this is the endowment ceremony where we just talked about the magic Mormon underwear we just talked about in the temple, where they, you know, had their... Uh, their bodies anointed by various uh, elder temple workers who mumbled appropriate incantations. This is witchcraft over them. They had their occult, they had their occult uh, underwear on, and that were sacred. And this this ceremony mocked all the doctrines held by biblical Christianity. Well, why, if they call themselves the only true Christians, would it mock biblical Christianity? Why would they choose just Christianity? Why wouldn't it mock Hinduism? Why wouldn't they choose Confucianism? Because they know, the devil knows the true battle is against biblical Christianity. If you look at all these occult ceremonies, things that, that the Satanists and things like that do, they're all a mocking of Christianity, particularly. That's what they really go out of their way to attack. Because that's where their true battle is. So this ceremony mocked all the doctrines held by biblical Christianity, and the Christian pastors were portrayed as servants of Satan. Well, I would have to almost agree with that. In today's day and age, most of them are servants of Satan. They're hirelings. They have no true love for the sheep. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're not giving the sheep the truth. They're letting their sheep be destroyed for lack of knowledge. They're not studying to show themselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. They're giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, having their speaking lies and hypocrisy, and having their consciences seared with a hot iron, according to 1 Timothy 4.1. They're doing all of that. Most Christian pastors are servants of Satan. They were brainwashed in the cemeteries they went to. And they have no true love for the sheep and no really true love for the, for the truth. I'm sorry, but that's the state of affairs we're in. And the Bible said it was going to be like this. And God said he was going to be the one that sends the strong delusion. Mormonism is just part of the strong delusion. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. Why? That they would believe a lie that they might all be damned to receive not the love of the truth. Well, that's not the God I serve. Well, that's the God of the Bible. I'm sorry. That's how important truth is. We're destroyed for lack of knowledge. And if you're destroyed for lack of the Bible says, because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, and thou shalt be a priest to me no more, and I will also reject thy children. So when you reject knowledge, you're actually many, many times condemning your children as well. It's very important what truth you obey and what truth you follow. King James Bible is my standard. I believe it is the word of God and that is what I follow. Okay, I'm a Bible believing. When people say, What denomination are you? I'm a Bible believing, born again Christian. I don't even put a denominational label on me because essentially all denominations are leavened at, at one level or another. Okay, I'm not saying they're all bad, they're all taking everybody to hell. Okay, but I'm just saying from what I have seen being in several different denominations, I chose to come out from among them. And I believe. They're 501c3 institutions for the most part. Most of them don't use the King James Bible. Most of them have as much world as, as the world does in them. Most of them are just playing church. Well, wherefore come out from among them and be not partakers of her plagues. That's what the Bible says to do. <clears throat> so, if we go further. So these, these endowment ceremonies mock biblical Christianity, they mock the Christian pastors, they portrayed them as servants of Satan, and then we had to swear many blood oaths. 
Oh, this is an anabase, and they had to swear blood oaths. The Bible says, above all, swear not. Well, that's why, that's why things like the Freemasons and the Mormonism and all these other cults want you to do it. Because if there's something God doesn't want you to do, don't you think a cult's going to try to get you to do it? That's exactly their purpose. They had to swear blood oaths. When you swear these blood oaths, you're adopting demons inside you, essentially. At bare minimum, they're heavily oppressing you. You're asking them to essentially come to you. These blood oaths. And these blood oaths, we were promising we would forfeit our lives if we weren't faithful. Well, that's just like the Freemasons. They, they, um, and it says, or if we revealed any of the secrets revealed to us in the temple ceremonies. Now, isn't this ironic and hypocritical where Joseph Smith goes and steals all the secrets from the Freemasons, and yet he has these same blood oaths in the Mormons, and he is the one that stole them and revealed them in this religion, but in his religion, they have... Similar blood oaths that say, oh, oh, you can't reveal any of these secrets. But it was okay for him to do it to start this false cult. <laughs> you can expose this thing so many different ways, it's not even funny. So then, it says, we were made to pretend by gro grotesque gestures to cut our throats, chest, and abdomens, indicating how we would lose our life. This is exactly what the Freemasons do. They make all these gestures and all these things and all these hand signals with the same thing. We were never told who would kill us either if we violated this. The inference was, and the history testifies, that the that we would be the Mormon priesthood. Now this is a testimony of a former, former Mormon I just read. Note, the blood oaths and the portrayal of Christian pastors, pastors were originally removed in April of 1990. Despite the fact that the ordinance was purported to have been given originally by revelation and was never to be changed. But see, they had to get more politically correct. You notice how they're backpedaling now. You notice how they don't ever bring up all the false prophecies that their supposed, you know, Joseph Smith or Brigham Young said. They don't, they don't mention that. They don't mention how they used to, what they used to say about uh, the black people. They don't mention what they used to say, you know, about these blood oaths and the portrayal of Christian pastors. Because, see, they've whitewashed their image in recent days. Why would they do that? Because they want to bring more people in. They want to deceive more people. Well, let's look at some quotes right out of their mouths from um, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Let's start with Joseph Smith, the guy that started Mormonism. Here's a quote from the Documentary of Church History, Volume 6, page 319-320. He says, quote, God made Aaron to be the mouthpiece for the children of Israel. And he will make me to be God to you in his stead. <laughs> Did you hear that? He says, and he, he's speaking to the Mormons, Joseph Smith says, he will make me to be God to you in his stead. Like God needs any help from Joseph Smith. And the elders to be the mouth for me. And if you don't like it, you must lump it. End of quote. Well, I guess he told me. I love it when I get emails from people and it's all their opinions. Not, not, a, not a scripture vote... Not a scripture quoted. Or if there is one quoted, it's totally out of context. I'm not saying I'm above reproach or, I, or I'm above being rebuked. Okay, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that so much of the time, that's what I'll get is people's opinion. My response to them is, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Almost every single time, all they're doing is trusting in their own heart. And the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9. So, you know, hey. 
We got, we all have got, uh, have opinions. Now, this is a um, another quote from again the documentary of history of the church, volume six, page four hundred eight, four hundred nine. It says, "Quote: <clears throat> This is from Joseph Smith. I have more to boast of than any ever than any ever any man had. I had more to boast of than than ever any man had." Oh, this guy had no shortage of ego. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. Oh, there's no pride with him. Pride goeth before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Well, he had a fall. Yeah, it's called murder. They murdered him. Yeah. So he's the only one that's ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. No, he's not. There's been many cults that have, that have predated him. Because that's all he's got is a cult. He's given himself way too much credit. A large majority of the whole has stood before me, or stood by me. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. Oh, man, this guy is just unbelievable. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. End of quote. <laughs> Would you follow this man? If you're in this religion, you are. He's the foundation. These quotes are just, they get worse. Here's another one from, again, Volume 6. This is page 78, Documentaries of History of the Church. This one says, quote from Joseph Smith, The whole earth shall bear witness, shall bear me witness that I, like the towering rock in the midst of the ocean, <laughs> which hath withstood the mighty surges of the warring waves for centuries, am impregnable. <laughs> I can't help but not laugh. What a fool. Then it says, I combat the air of ages. I meet the violence of mobs. I cope with the legal proceedings from executive authority. I cut the Gordanian knot of powers. Now that's a phrase that I think you, Lisa, you need to use more of. That you cut the Gordanian knot of powers. Whatever that means. And then he says, and I solve the mathematical problems of universities. Now he gets into mathematics. He does it all, this guy. He's an animal. I solve the mathematical problems of universities with truth. Diamond truth. And God is my right-hand man. End of quote. Have you ever heard anything? The pride, the arrogance of this guy. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of just what Satan did in the Bible. Okay, now, I think this is appropriate. I just got a conviction that I need to read this. Because this quote that he just read about, I, 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 I do all these things, did that kind of like sound familiar? Like, how about Isaiah 14? Essentially like the biography of Lucifer. Let's start at verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, this is what Lucifer said. Now, Joseph Smith was following his father, the devil, and of his works he will do. And of his works he will say. Okay? So he's just doing what he's seen his father, the devil, do. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of congregation in the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. 
And that's where Joseph Smith is burning right now. And they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble and did shake the kingdoms? That's what, that's what Satan's end is. Ultimately, that's what we're going to, if you're a born-again believer, you're going to look down on him eventually. I'm not saying that's now. okay? Because right now, he's not in that position yet. But I'm saying ultimately. We're going to look down on him and say this. I personally am looking forward to that day. <laughs> you know? But... Didn't that, didn't that sound familiar? I mean, it, all these eyes and eyes and eyes. Okay, let's go with another quote here. Um, this is, again, from the same uh, publication, Volume 5, page 394. This prophecy was made in May of 1943. Uh, he said, quote, I prophesy in the name of the Lord God of Israel, unless the United States redress the wrongs committed upon the saints in Missouri, this is, these are the Mormons, and punish the crimes committed by her officers, that in a few years, the government of the United States will be utterly overthrown and wasted, and there will not be so much as a pot shirt left. Oh, really? Well, that was made in 1843. The United States government was not overthrown and wasted. Hasn't been yet. I'm not saying that's not coming. <laughs> but he's acting as though, you know, this is going to happen in a very short time period. He says a few years. Well, he's a false prophet. Well, that's what false prophets do. They prophesy falsely and lies. But see, these people just continue to follow him, even when the prophecies don't come to pass. What they should be doing is saying, hey, wow, he said that a few years ago. It's already been ten years. Why am I staying in this junk? He ain't hearing from God. That's what got me out of the Pentecostal movement. That very thing. Now, I believe it's the Holy Spirit's mercy. But... And when I yielded to the King James Bible that it was the Word of God, my eyes were open to these things. I'm telling you, it's that big of a deal. It really is. Now, if you go further, this is uh, the teachings of the prophet by Joseph Smith, page 346. He says, quote, Here then is eternal life, to know the only wise and true God, and you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves. And to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you. End of quote. Here's another quote from him in the beginning. The head of the gods called the council of the gods, and they came together and concocted a plan to create the world and the people in it. End of quote. Again, when you start talking about gods and these things, this is what paganism believes. Paganism and polytheism, many, many gods, many gods that we can worship, and we're going to become as gods. This is the big lie of the New Age movement. We're going to become as gods. We're going to become ascended or ascended masters and these types of things. Yeah, Pentecostal movement's very big on this too. Like Kenneth Copeland saying, you, you are God, you're little God. All these, these Pentecostals, Benny Hinn and these guys, they all, they all really, see, this is why when the Antichrist really starts to make his emergence with all lying signs and wonders, obviously the religions have already been primed. And all it's really going to take is, a, is one or two polarizing events in the form of trauma, probably World War III, if you mix a big dose of man-made fear in there, and then you have this supposed Savior come along, saying, I got the answers to everything, and he's going to come with all lines, signs, and wonders, everybody's going to be falling for this stuff, hook, line, and sinker. And the Christians that warm the pews that go to these churches, where they're not getting truth, they don't think it's going to affect them any. They don't think it's going to affect them at all. Okay. 
you think that you're going to be raptured out of here before anything... Okay, let's let's say you, you believe in the, in the pre-trib rapture. Okay, I'm not going to get into a theological debate on that level. All I'm saying is, even if you believe in the pre-trib rapture, think about this. It says in verse 3... And this is in regard to our, um, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him. This is what we're talking about, our gathering together unto Him. Verse 3 says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, what? Our gathering together unto Him. That day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, which is the apostasy of the church, that Revelation 3 predicted, that it predicts here, that it predicts all throughout the, the, uh, the New Testament, that there's going to become a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed. It says and. And. It's going to happen in conjunction. Prior to Jesus coming back. So even if you believe in the pre-trib rapture, it says right here that the man of sin is going to be revealed, the son of perdition. Well, if it happens prior to Jesus Christ coming back, don't you think you want to kind of know the earmarks of that? Don't you think you want, you want to kind of arm yourself against the deception and the strong delusion that's coming? Isn't that reasonable to want to do that? But see, a lot of people say, oh, no, no, it's going to be a falling away, then we're going to get raptured, then the man of sin is going to be revealed. That's not what the Bible says. That is not what the Bible says at all. The falling away and the man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition. It's going to happen in conjunction. So, regardless of if you believe in pre-trib, post-trib, dominionism, whatever, you're going to see the Antichrist most likely. And if you're not educated on how to discern things, and educated on these issues, and if you're in some church that's not teaching you truth, and he comes with all lying signs and wonders, and does all these other things that we mentioned, you're going to be deceived most likely. Well, I'll become a quick study. I'll learn it when the, when the day time, time comes. But before then, I'm not going to be concerned with these things. Well, okay, but don't be surprised if you buy into it, hook, line, and sinker. Just a little sidebar there that I think is important. I had a man leave my Bible study originally when we first started this over that one verse because he believed it was after. And I kept pointing to him and I said, it says, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Well, I but see... the. Through the traditions of men, they've made the word of God of none effect. Because he had had this beaten into his head for 20 years in the Baptist church, that that was it. Well, I don't care what the Bible says. Well, okay, fine. Then you've just started your own religion. The world according to you. The world according to the tradition of men. Says it right there. It doesn't say after. And then after. Then I would agree with them. I'd say, well, yeah, it says after. Falling away and then after. Doesn't say that. So anyway, if we go further, this is the last quote from um, Smith. He says, The greatest responsibility in this world that God has laid upon us is to seek after our dead. <laughs> the Bible says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. There's nothing you can do about it once they die. That is why my prayer for these people is, God, whatever it takes, get them right in this life. What good is it if they live a life of wickedness and take other people to hell and then they go to hell and they take other people with them? You can't do anything. Their fate is sealed. It's done. It's over. Nothing you can do. You can't pray them out of there. You can't baptize for the dead. You can't pray them out of purgatory. You can't offer masses for the dead. It doesn't work. 
It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's tradition of men, which again, makes the word of God of none effect. But that's what he says. He says, our greatest responsibility in this world, God has laid, God has laid upon us to seek after our dead. Boy, I bet you that makes them feel real holy too, if they have that kind of power to go after the dead. This is basically, now you're getting into necromancy too, which is communication with the dead. I mean, if you're baptizing them by proxy, isn't that communication with the dead? That's necromancy. That was punishable by death in the Old Testament. What did Brigham Young say? Let's, let's hear some quotes from him. He's, this guy is, is, oh, he's something else. This is from Journal of Discourses, volume 13, page 95. He says, quote, I have never preached a, ser a sermon and sent it out, assertion, and sent it out to the children of men that they may not call scripture. Yeah, it was a, I have never preached a sermon and sent it out to the children of men that they may not call it scripture. What does that mean? That means that every sermon he's ever preached is just as good as the word of God is what he's saying. He's putting himself on the level of Jesus Christ. In fact, he's elevating himself above that. He's elevating himself above that. Because you know, all their extra-biblical stuff always takes precedent over the Word of God. I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. And then he says, then he says in this quote, let me, let me have the privilege of correcting a sermon. And it is good as a scripture. So if he corrects a sermon, let's say he comes and he hears my thing, he ain't going to hear because he's in hell, but let's say there was somebody back there preaching a sermon, exposing the Mormons, and he goes and he corrects the sermon. He says that's as good as scripture. Do you see the, the level of pride these devils in the flesh are operating at? We're talking, man, it's unbelievable. And then he said, in the same publication, volume 1, page 83, he said, I'd rather that the apostates should flourish here. I will unsheath my bowie knife and conquer or die. And when he was preaching this, there was a great commotion in the congregation and a simultaneous burst of feeling, assenting to the declaration. In other words, yeah, let's kill him! And then he says, now you nasty apostates, that would mean anyone that was against the Mormon church, now you nasty apostates, clear out, or judgment will be put on the line. If you say it is right, raise your hands. And then all the hands raised up. And then he said, let us call upon the Lord to assist us in this, in every good work. So in other words, he's basically saying, we're going to... They were a lot more overt back then. You know, but they, they'll kill you. And then he goes on to say, another quote, I could refer you to plenty of instances where men have been righteously slain in order to atone for their sins. This is, this is loving our neighbors as ourselves. If he needs help, help him. And, and if he wants salvation, and if it's necessary to spill his blood on earth in order to do that, in order that he may be saved, spill it. Well, hey, listen. If, like I said before, if God has to hang somebody out over hell in order to get him saved, that's his business. Do it. But we're not to go around spilling blood as Christians, in order to supposedly get somebody saved. That was from Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, page 220. Now many were killed under what is called the, quote, blood atonement doctrine. Leaving Mormonism was one of the sins that the blood of Jesus could not atone for. So it's like being in the mafia. You want out? Okay, fine, but you're going to die. 
In the earlier days, it was that overt. Now, like, again, it's a lot more candy-coated and whitewashed today. But back then, their true colors were showing more. You know? And, and a person's own blood must be shed by Mormon priests as an atonement for their sin. You know, so, that's what they believe. And then, if we go further, he says, this is Brigham Young, Quote, I intend to meet them on their own grounds. And if any miserable scoundrel comes here, cut their throats. Oh, that sounds real Christian. Bless them that curse you. You know, do good to them that despitefully use you. For great is your reward in heaven. That's what Jesus said. You know, remember that? Well, he, he didn't really care what Jesus said. Now, they obeyed this. As a wagon train full of innocent men, women, and children were massacred, were massacred at Mountain Meadows under the orders of Brigham Young. I believe there was a movie made about this not too long ago. They actually made a movie or documentary about this. And the Mormons were not happy. Because, see, again, they want to cover up all this stuff. They want to whitewash it, candy coat it. So a wagon train of innocent men, women, and children... Children! Were massacred at Mountain Meadows under the orders of Brigham Young. That's the type of person this devil was. They were passing through Utah, and Brigham Young thought they were from Illinois, where Joseph Smith had been killed. Many more were then atoned. In other words, they were killed. What, what was his basis of killing them? Because he thought they were from Illinois, where jo Joseph Smith had been killed? Because he stealed all the, the, the secrets from the Masons? He should have been trying to kill the Masons. Why kill innocent people? That's how delusional this guy was. And then Brigham Young goes on to say, quote, Gold and silver grow, and so does every other kind of metal, the same as the hair upon my head or the wheat in the field, end of quote. So he believed gold and silver grow. So everybody now, if you got gold or silver, go out and put it in the ground, maybe it'll sprout up a gold and silver plant. That's evidently what he's saying here. This is, this is just showing you the, the level of lunacy this man operated at. Here's another quote from the Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, page 219. Quote, Who can tell us of the inhabitants of this little planet that shines in the evening called the moon? The inhabitants? Who can tell us of the inhabitants of this little planet? Oh, evidently a whole bunch of people, some inhabitants live up there. And then he says, So in this regard, to the, so it is with regard to the inhabitants of the sun. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people living on that thing. Thousands and thousands and thousands of degrees. It'd be kind of rough living on the sun, though, I think, you know. But he says people live there, so it's good enough for me, I guess. And then he says, do you think it is, do you not think it's inhabited? I rather think it is. Well, you know, again, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end of the ways of death. He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool, and that's all this man ever trusted in. But he, he thinks that people live on the sun. Then he says, do you think there is any life there? No question of it. It was not made in vain. No, it wasn't made in vain, but the sun's heat and these types of things and the seasons is what actually keep this planet going. Now, I know the Lord Jesus Christ is in charge of all that, but that's what Jesus Christ set into motion to keep this planet inhabitable, at least one of the things. Because if there was no sun, we'd all freeze to death. You know? Plants wouldn't grow. <laughs> we'd be dead real quick. But, you know... He's got his own theory. And then, we go to the next quote. Journal Discourses, Volume 11, page 269. He says, Do you think we shall ever be admitted as a state into the Union without denying the principle of polygamy, which is multiple wives? If we are not admitted until then, we shall never be admitted. In other words, they will never deny the doctrine of polygamy. We would rather never be uh, admitted to the Union. That's how, that's how important the doctrine of 
polygamy was to them. But the Edmonds Act was passed in 1882 forbidding polygamy in the territory. And only then was Utah allowed to enter into the Union. At that point, the LDS Church officially gave up polygamy. Oh well, so much for their hardcore stance. Another false prophecy from another false Mormon prophet. The next quote. I think these preliminaries will satisfy me. I feel prepared to take my text. It is the words of Jesus Christ. But where they are in the Bible, I cannot tell you now. <laughs> so in other words, he's supposedly quoting from the words of Jesus Christ. Where they are in the Bible, he can't tell us. Then he goes on to say, For I have not taken the pains to look at them. <laughs> and then he says, I have had so much to do that I have not read the Bible for many years. He's admitting it! At least we had a little bit of honesty here. And then he says, I used to read and study it, but I did not understand the spirit and the meaning of it. End of quote. Sure he don't, because he don't have the Holy Spirit living inside him. Before I looked at the Bible, before I, particularly the King, I didn't understand what it was, and that Bible clearly predicts that's the case. Unless the Holy Spirit lives inside you, it's going to be as his foolishness when you look at the Bible. I'm not saying you can't read the Bible unto salvation, okay? But I'm saying to interpret things within the Bible, this is a spiritual thing. Okay, the Holy Spirit has to guide you in this. And the Bible promises He will do this. But this guy said he hadn't read the Bible for many years. He didn't understand the Spirit or the meaning of it. Where did he, where did he say this? In 1854 at the conference discourse, October 8th. Brigham Young obviously did not study the Bible. Neither do any other Mormon prophets. They don't need, none of them do. Now, in recent years, Mormon leaders, including the church's false modern-day prophet, Gordon B. Hinckley, have sought to align the LDS public teachings and practices with those of the politically correct global ecumenicism. Now, I said a lot alluding to this in this study. This whole thing about how they're now candy-coating and whitewashing things. And this is right on cue with all the religions of the world forming the one world religion of the Antichrist, most likely under the banner of the Catholic Church. Okay, they're all going to come together. I, I've, we've already talked about this. Now it says, but it is only until recently the Mormons wanted to be called Christians, preferring not to be included with Christian denominations, which Joseph Smith Jr. said were all wrong, were all creeds, were an abomination in his sight. Remember, that's what he was told originally by supposedly, you know, Jesus that appeared to him. All the religions were abominations. And that those professors, Christians, were all corrupt. End of quote. That's from, where's, where's that from? That's from the Pearl of Great Price, one of their unholy books. Joseph Smith, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Mormons have preferred to be called saints. However, in recent years, the LDS Church has spent millions of dollars in an intense public relation campaign aimed at moving the Mormon Church into the mainstream of Christianity. The political and economic benefits of Mormons being included in the mainstream of Christianity are obvious. And now also, now we have this, this bold move by a Mormon who's running for president. That's how bad it's gotten. That's why I felt it appropriate to do this teaching. I really do. I believe that if the Illuminati has their way, they're going to uh, appoint Hillary, I mean Hillary Clinton, into the White House. Um, because you've got the Bushes, George Bush Sr., you've got serving one term, you've got the Clintons serving, uh, George, or 
Bill Clinton serving two terms, and then you got back to George Bush Jr. for two terms. See, these they're, they're covering for one another. They've committed all these heinous and horrific acts. And in order to ensure their cover, and the cover-up continues, it's better if they have their own people installed at the head of the presidency. That's my opinion. I pray to God that Hitlery doesn't become our president. Okay? But... Um, I'm not saying any of them are, are, are a whole lot, you know, different that, that have any real chance of actually becoming president. But her in particular, um, this woman is involved and has been involved in, in I'm, I'm convinced, is a generational Luciferian Satanist. It's well known in the occult circles that she outranks Bill as far as the occult goes. There was a book called, uh, I think it was called Unlimited Access by Gary Aldrich, which would talk about how when... Bill did something out of line in the White House that Hillary would actually take him aside and, and pummel him, essentially. You know, I know he didn't come out there bruises all over his face, but she would take him in, and he essentially wouldn't really even fight back against her. Because she outranks him. She's more evil, I believe, than Bill. Again, that's a whole other study that we could do. It's a sidebar note, but I thought I should mention it. Uh, going further, so the Mormons have... have have spent millions in intense PR campaigning, moving the Mormon church into mainstream Christianity. The political and economic benefits of Mormons being included in the mainstream of Christianity are obvious. Further, for Mormons to be accepted as traditional Christians would greatly aid in proselytizing the members of Christian denominations into the LDS church, because they could say, we're the true church. We're the, really the true Christians. Remember, they already said it in some of those writings. They believe they're the ones. This is why the LDS Church is trying so hard to present itself as Christian, and is trying to overcome the stigma of being, an, of being a cult. Now, that was from a cult from a particular uh, magazine there that I just read from. Then it says, Moreover, Mormons, let it be known in the early 2001 that they are no longer wanted to be referred to as the Mormon Church the Latter-day Church, or the LDS Church. If the name must be shortened, the Church of Jesus Christ. This church has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. But they say the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. That would be acceptable. That was, they said that on 319.01. So say again, they've really, and this is right on cue, with forming the one world religion. They've all got to play nice and get along in order for this to happen, right? They're all 501c3 corporations. They're all corporate churches. They're all evil at the very, very top, for the most part. And, uh, they're primed for this to happen. Now, one last thing I'm just going to mention because it does uh, talk about this. There's another Mormon church. Now, I think it's just good, just to, as a side note, to mention this. Another Mormon church is called the RLDS Church, Community of Christ. This article goes on to say, Let me just read one other thing I had neglected to read here. Mormons believe that everyone who lives and dies on earth goes to a place called the spirit prison, except faithful Mormons who go to paradise. Mormon spirit missionaries, Mormon spirit missionaries, so they got their spirit missionaries and they got the ones that are here on earth. Mormon spirit missionaries go down from paradise to the spirit prison to teach the gospel of Joseph Smith. 
to the lost Christians and others there. Those who accept Mormonism must remain in prison until a worthy Mormon performs certain essential rituals called ordinances for them to be for, for one of them in the Mormon temples. See, all this is works. It's all pride, it's all works. That's how they actually get out of the spirit prison, because some faithful Mormon does. But only after they've had the spirit missionaries witness to them the gospel of Joseph Smith. This is, this is insanity. And then they are released from spirit prison to join the Mormons in paradise. Well, I'm, gl- I'm so glad we've got that all squared away. Now the last part, again, this is... Um, the other part of the Mormon church. Because, see, every cult has its offshoots. See, people within the cult, you know, they say, well, I think I'm hearing from God, and I'm going to go do it my way. So there's always these splinter groups that form. We're often asked about the other Mormon church that is headquartered in Independence, Missouri. The questions vary from, are they a cult, to what is the difference between them and the Utah Mormons? The answer to the first is easy, yes, they are a cult. The answer to the second is a bit more complicated. The RLDS, or Reorganized Latter-day Saints, actually had its start after the assassination of Joseph Smith Jr., the founder and the prophet of all the LDS churches. After his death in 1844, there were many men who rose up and declared themselves to be the true prophet to replace Smith. Many of these, quote, new prophets began their own version of the only true church. In fact, there have been over 100 distinct groups claiming to be the church that would end all controversy about the restored gospel. The RLDS is the largest of these spin-off groups. When Brigham Young led most of the saints to the Salt Lake Valley in Utah, certain leaders who did not accept Smith's revelation on polygamy branched off and formed the RLDS church. One of these men was Jason Briggs, who had been an elder in the LDS church in Nauvoo, Illinois, and had his own revelation that Joseph Smith III, Joseph Jr.'s son, was the one rightfully to assume the mantle of the prophet. He, along with 300 others, following Emma Smith, Joseph Jr.'s first and only non-polygamous wife, to Independence, Missouri. At first, Joseph Smith III refused to take on the job of prophet, but he later relented and became the official head of the RLDS Church on April 6, 1860. Its official publications are the monthly magazine, Saints Herald, and the bi-monthly Restoration Witness. Okay, we're going to go to part three now. Uh, that ends our the session on the Mormonism. We're going to do another part here, and uh, we'll go to that next. Thank you.